So we've been spending our time together on Sunday mornings walking through what is known as the Apostles' Creed. You know, it is uh, the most widely accepted and one of the earliest confessions of faith in the church. The tagline for this series is, what's the least I can believe and still be a Christian? But the goal of the series isn't, isn't to water down the faith, it's to declutter it, right? It's to get rid of all the extra so that we can really focus in on the essentials. Because the extra has this tendency of sort of getting in the way, doesn't it? Remember, uh, we opened the creed with the words, I believe, or the earliest versions of the creed, we believe. And that word believe, in the original language of the creed, which is Latin, it's this word credo. Uh, and it can be better translated probably as, as something like, I give my heart to, or I set my heart on. And so this belief that we're professing in the creed isn't necessarily intellectual certainty. It's, it's more about relational trust. When we affirm this creed, we're not saying that we're able to sort of wrap our, our minds around everything that it's affirming. No, we're saying that we're willing to open our hearts to it. We're willing to trust this story and to build our lives around it. So before we go any further, let's take a second and say it together just so that we know what we're talking about here, right? The words should be on the screen. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So Jesus, you know, is the heart and soul of the creed. More than half of the words in the creed are about Jesus. And the first thing the creed does is it ascribes two titles to Jesus, right? God's only Son and our Lord. We spent the last two weeks looking at each of those titles. But what happens after those titles is that the creed then goes on to list this sort of litany of different historical moments, big moments from the life of Jesus. And that's where I want us to hang out today, right? We could spend a whole series wrestling with sort of the theological implications of each one of these moments. And we'll do some of that a bit later in the series. We'll circle back to a few of these moments. But the thrust of this part of the creed isn't towards any particular understanding of what these events mean. Instead, this part of the creed seems to be an insistence that these moments actually happened or these moments will happen. So that's what I want us to look at today. I want us to look at the historical claims of the creed about Jesus and then consider what evidence we have for believing that these claims are in fact historically true. But then of course, what I really want us to do at the end is sort of wrestle with what are the implications of believing, of trusting that they are in fact true. But first, before we do that, I just want to run through these, these moments to make sure you know, we know what we're talking about, right? Uh, it begins by saying that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Theologically, this part of the creed claims that Jesus was somehow 
both fully God and fully human. That when we look at Jesus, we see the clearest picture of what God is like, and we see the fullest picture of what humanity is meant to be, you and me. That's what we see when we look at Jesus. I love how the author of John says it in the opening of his gospel, when he says about Jesus that in him was life, and that life was the light of all humankind. Love that. I've heard it said that in Jesus, God comes to us in full humanity so that then he can lead us into our full humanity. But historically, this part of the creed is saying, is claiming that Jesus was in fact a real person who was born, who had a mom, right? That he was a sort of real dude, right? In more recent history, it's sometimes claimed that Jesus wasn't a real person, but he was this sort of mythological figure that the church made up to kind of give weight and direction uh, to its movement. But the historical evidence for Jesus being a real human, a real person who actually lived and walked on planet Earth, the evidence for that, historically speaking, is overwhelming. I mean, no serious historical scholar would suggest that Jesus wasn't a real person. Bart Ehrman is a really well-renowned ancient uh, historian, and he actually dedicated an entire book to examining the historical evidence of Jesus, even though that he was a self-proclaimed agnostic. You know, it wasn't really sure what he thought about all of this. But he, a whole book was dedicated to sort of researching this. And he summarized his research by saying this, that, that Jesus did exist whether we like it or not. Right? There's enough historical evidence to support that. So the creed claims that Jesus was a real person who was born to a mother, but then it goes on to say that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. This part is kind of funny to me, not only because that name's kind of fun to say, Pontius Pilate, uh, but it just, it feels like an intrusion, you know, in the creed. So far, there's like been all this big theological, you know, stuff being said, creator God of the heavens and earth, even Mary. I mean, that's a person, but I mean, there are some parts of the church that recognize, you know, that she's a saint, like she's a big deal. She gave birth to God. And then Pontius Pilate just sort of shows up kind of out of nowhere, right? Uh, great theologian Karl Barth, uh, during the 30s and 40s, he, he wrote so much great work, but he said this about Pontius Pilate in the Creed. He said, Pontius Pilate comes into the Creed like a mangy dog walking into a fancy room. I love that. It's like, who is this guy? Like, where did he come from, right? Pontius Pilate was a real person that we can read about in other Uh, ancient historical records. He was the fifth governor of Judea who served under the emperor Tiberius from about 26 or 27 AD to 36 or 37 AD. But his role gives you an idea of kind of how the Romans, you know, did things. Israel was conquered by Rome about 60 years before Jesus was born. Before that, Israel had experienced a little over 100 years of freedom from foreign rule. But then the Romans came in, and they're in charge, and Rome was a bit more intelligent than all the other uh, empires um, in the ancient world. One of the ways they held together such a massive empire is through what's known as a ethnarch. So what they would do is they would put into power kind of this puppet king from among the people. So it was like one of their own who was a king for them, but really just did what Rome told them to do. And so in Judea, that was King Herod. You've heard about him, you know, the Christmas story. Uh, That's King Herod. So Pilate was his sort of boss, uh, his governor. 
of the region who would come in town from time to time just to make sure everybody was clear on who was really in charge. Rome, right? Even though Herod was recognized as king of the Jews, Rome still was the one uh, who was in charge. So in the gospel story, Pilate is the one who sentences Jesus to crucifixion in order to appease the crowds. I learned something interesting about Pilate uh, this past week. There's this really old tradition within an Ethiopian church, the Coptics. Some say it dates all the way back to like the second century, but that Pilate and his wife eventually became Christian, that they were converted into the faith and even died uh, as martyrs. There's really no way to prove that, you know, historically if it happened or not, but I love the impulse behind it. And it makes you wonder, it's like, did they include Pilate in the creed as this sort of reminder that nobody's too far gone, that anybody can sort of turn things around? I kind of like that, right? But the next part of the creed says that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. Jesus died, but not in any, any, just any sort of tragic way. He was, he was crucified. That's, that's shameful. I mean, the crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst, basically insurrectionists. You know, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and we talk about the, the two thieves that were there with him, the word there, thieves, is a kind of a mild way to translate it. They were insurrectionists. They were people who had tried to start an open revolt against the Romans. That's what crucifixion uh, was reserved for. And it was the most shameful way for someone to die. One Roman historian, a guy by the name of Cicero, said this about the cross, Far be the very name of a cross, not only from the body, but even from the thought, the eyes, and the ears of a Roman citizen. So of course you didn't want to be on a cross, but you didn't even want to think about the cross. You didn't want to see it. You didn't want it to come to mind. I mean, it was that, that shameful. So think about that. A man who was known for his kindness, for healing people, for feeding people. He suffers one of the most horrible forms of capital punishment ever conceived. I mean, he died and he was buried. Some versions of the creed say that he descended to the dead or even to hell. We'll circle back to that at the end uh, of the series. But the insistence here is that he, he really died. The early, you know, as the movement was really getting started and kind of breaking into all these different parts of the world, I mean, that was really hard for people to get their head around. Is how could God in Jesus die? The idea of God dying was just too hard for people. And there were some of these heresies that sort of sprouted up around that. He didn't actually die, but they came back when they were writing the creed and they said, no, he died. He was dead. And then the creed goes on to say, on the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, here's where I want us to kind of hang out for a bit, taking a look at this particular part as a historical claim. But first, let's make sure we understand how the first Christians saw all of this kind of working out, particularly the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. So we often think that the resurrection comes in at the end and like cleans up this epic tragedy. But that's, that's not how the first Christians understood the resurrection. They saw it as an act of vindication. You see, to vindicate means to prove something is true. Sort of like this. My son Rowan, uh, he hurt his finger a couple weeks ago playing basketball. You know, finger, fingers get hurt, especially if you're playing playing sports. And so we really thought it was just like a jam, like a bad jam. 
and he's playing tackle football right now. And so I, I taped him up and, you know, sent him back to practice uh, to play. But he kept telling us, my wife and I, that, man, that I, I don't think this is jammed. I think it's really hurt, and I think I need to get it checked out. And, and just before I could tell him, like, suck it up and quit being a crybaby, my wife said, I think we should take him in and just get an x-ray, right, to make sure that it's okay. And then also this sort of communicates to him that we trust him and he can trust his, his body. And I was like, fine, whatever. All right, we'll do it. Maybe him hearing from somebody else that he's okay will get him to believe that he's okay. That's what I thought would happen. That's not what happened. X-rays found that he did in fact break his finger. He had a crack in it right next to the growth plate. So he is wearing a cast. I am so glad I didn't say all that to my son. I mean, on the way home, he's like, hey dad, thanks for believing me. (laughs) But his X-ray vindicated him, right? It proved that he had been, what he had been saying all along was true. See, that's what the first Christians believed about the resurrection. It didn't clean up the cross. It revealed the cross as the way of God. And, and the part about the ascension, right? That's royal enthronement language that the Christians are borrowing from sort of the wider Roman world. The resurrection in their mind vindicates the person and the way of Jesus. It proves that Jesus really was who he says he was, that he was somehow God in the flesh. And therefore, what Jesus said was true, that his way of life, his way of compassion and generosity and integrity, of justice and mercy and loving your neighbor, of self-otherness, that that really is the best and the most beautiful way to live. Now understand, there are all sorts of ways of understanding what all of this means and, and sort of how it works. I mean, take the crucifixion of Jesus, for example. There are at least seven different atonement theories that people have ascribed to throughout church history. An atonement theory is an attempt to try and explain what's actually happening on the cross. Like, what is Jesus' death accomplishing? Right? The, the creed seems less interested in explaining it and instead more interested in insisting that it all happened. That's where I want us to go right now. Sort of consider some of the evidence we have, historically speaking, to believe that the crucifixion and especially the resurrection actually happened. And I get, I get why this can be hard. Why this can be hard to sort of wrap our mind around how a guy who had been killed in such a horrendous way could come back from the dead three days later. That's hard to believe. And it's led many to assume that it was just a legend that the church made up, again, to give extra weight and authority and direction you know, to their movement. I get why we might be tempted to think that, but I do also think we have some really good historical evidence to believe that it actually happened. So I want to use this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as a sort of launching pad. Let me read it to us real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3, says this, For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, which is the Aramaic word for Peter, right? Cephas, and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's how Paul talks about death. Then He appeared to James who was Jesus' brother and eventually became uh, the head of the church in Jerusalem. 
then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. So 1 Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul, and in this passage, what he's doing is he's basically handing off this sacred tradition to the church in Corinth. Now, scholars agree that these verses, this passage, has a sort of creedal structure to them, right? That this was probably an even earlier confession for the church than the Apostles' Creed. And the thrust of this is that Jesus really died and really rose from the dead, and that people saw it, right? He mentions them by name, Cephas, Peter. He saw Jesus uh, the twelve saw Jesus. There were five hundred other people who uh, witnessed and, and interacted with this resurrected Jesus. Jesus' own brother James, who wasn't on board at first, didn't believe that you know his his brother was the Messiah. He eventually had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and then last of all, Paul. Paul had a dramatic encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Um, it's believed that this letter, Corinthians, was written. Between 52 and 54 AD. So, probably within 20 years after the first Easter, we already have this established tradition around what people were claiming happened that day the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And we have a named group of eyewitnesses. Now, by historical standards, this is remarkable. It's incredibly rare to have an established sort of tradition or creed and a bunch of named witnesses within 20 years of an event like this. I mean, typically when it comes to ancient history, what we often have to do is like rely on these single sources that are sometimes removed from the events they are describing by hundreds of years. I mean, take, take Alexander the Great, for example. Most of what we know, or what we think we know, about Alexander the Great comes from one historical source that was written four centuries after he lived, 400 years. And scholars deem that source is reliable when it comes to understanding Alexander the Great. With Jesus, though, and the resurrection, you have an established creed or tradition around his death and resurrection, and you've got a large group of documented witnesses within 20 years of the event. And you know, the closer a report is to an event, the less time there is for it to be altered or for there to be what historians call legendary accretion, uh, which is basically the story about this person gets mythologized. It gets blown up. It, it, it gets altered, right? And it becomes sort of bigger. That takes a lot of time. 20 years isn't enough for that to happen. And what Paul is mentioning here, this sort of creed or this sort of tradition, it seems to be even closer to the event than, than 20 years. See, Paul first received this tradition 16 years earlier when he went to Jerusalem and he met with the apostles. You can read about this in Galatians chapter 1. So think about that. There's good reason to believe that this tradition around the death and the resurrection of Jesus actually was formalized and being shared as early as four to five years after the events of the resurrection. I mean, historically speaking, that's remarkable evidence. I think it challenges the idea of, of this just being a legend, like something that pe people just sort of made up. Because again, like I said, historically, legends take a lot of time. They don't usually start with the people who were the closest to the actual legend, the person who becomes a legend. They usually take generations being removed from it 
and it getting blown up and, and made bigger and more fantastical. Like take, for instance, the Buddha, right? The Buddha, when you read the earliest writings about him that were the closest to when he was alive, you know, he's a remarkable person who had some great teachings, but he's not this sort of supernatural persona. That took over 400 years to develop, right? That sort of legend around him. That doesn't happen with Jesus. You don't have four centuries. You don't even have a decade, you know, before, before there is this formalized sort of creed and tradition around his death and his resurrection. I think that's some really good evidence that we at least have to consider. So there's that. But then there's also what these first eyewitnesses were willing to suffer because they claimed to have experienced because they trusted and believed that Jesus really came back from the dead. I mean, during the 30s and the 40s and the 50s in the first century, the church spread all over the Roman Empire. It started in Judea and Jerusalem, but it went everywhere. And by 64 AD, it was all over the place, and especially in Rome. And in Rome, you had an emperor named Nero who was out of his mind. Dude was crazy. And he actually set fire to the city of Rome, burned down a big part of it. And in order to avoid you know, people thinking it was him, he blamed it on the Christians. He said the Christians are the ones who burned down the city. And after that, this massive persecution starts to happen. That says something, that by 64 AD, the Christian movement was such a force and was so big that it could actually be named as a scapegoat for the emperor to get out of burning down the city. Uh, but many of these Christians during that time were arrested, they were tortured, and they were put, put to death in horrific ways. In fact, Roman historian and political uh, leader named uh, Tacitus is probably considered to be the greatest Roman historian of all time. He talks about this in, in one of his writings that was written like really early on in the second century. So probably somewhere around like 40 years after this persecution happened. But listen to what he says. He's not, he, he's not sympathetic to the Christians. He's not a big fan of Nero either, but he's, he's recognizing the horror that they experienced. But listen to this. He says, Therefore, in order to abolish the rumor that he had started the fire, Nero falsely accused and executed with the most exquisite punishments those people called Christians. The originator of the name, Christ, was executed as a criminal by the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. And though repressed, this destructive superstition erupted again. That's how they first referred to the Christian faith, as this sort of destructive superstition. Not only through Judea, which is where the origin of this evil took place, but also throughout the city of Rome. First those were seized who admitted their faith, and then using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted. And perishing, they were additionally made into sports. They were killed by dogs, by having the hides of beasts attached to them, or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame. And when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps, even though they were clearly guilty and merited being made the most recent example of the consequences of crime, people began to pity these sufferers because they were consumed not for the public good, but on account of the fierceness of one man. Nero. I mean, that's his description of the suffering that these first Christians experienced. Many of them were the, were the ones who were claiming to be eyewitnesses of this resurrection. They were, uh, they were killed in horrible ways. And, you know, many of them, they were willing to die for their belief in this Jesus story. I mean, all of the apostles but John were killed, were executed. And there is not one record of them 
sort of confessing that it wasn't true, that they made it all up. I think that means something. You know, people will die for a lie if they don't know it's a lie. But what sort of person would die in these horrible ways for a lie they made up? I, I just, I, I can't get my head around that. You know, sometimes people will claim that the church came up with all of this so they could sort of get power and kind of hold on to power. But, you know, for the first three centuries, when all this was happening, the church didn't have any sort of power. They were a persecuted minority. I mean, there was zero uh, sort of worldly benefit from maintaining all of this. And the first Christians experienced unreal persecution by the greatest empire on earth, and it wasn't enough to snuff out the movement. I mean, here we are still talking about Jesus. And if you just sort of stop and think about that, I mean, it's remarkable. It is really remarkable. I mean, Jesus, this guy came out of the back country in Roman-controlled Galilee. Y'all, this was the sticks. This was the middle of nowhere, globally speaking, right? He never traveled more than 200 miles away from his birthplace. He led a relatively small group of followers. Most of them were tradespeople. They weren't educated. They didn't have a lot of money or wealth. He was rejected by his own religious leaders, and he died a humiliating and shameful death. He never gained political power. He never raised an army. He never conquered any foreign land. By typical historical standards, he wasn't really all that impressive. And yet, And yet, here we are still talking about him. And yet, one-third of the population on planet Earth has professed faith in him. Man, I think one of the best explanations for why all of that is, is because something actually happened. And I think there's more evidence for us to consider. But I'm going to leave it there for now. Because here is where I want to finish. Remember, faith... Faith is more of a heart thing than a head thing, right? Can't prove all of this. But I would love for us to consider the sort of fruit that comes from trusting it. Trusting that this all happened. Because I think behind all of these historical claims about Jesus in the creed is this insistence that God is involved in human history. That God is up to something with us and with our world. That God is taking this place somewhere. I mean, the creed locates the story of what God is doing with Jesus, locates that story inside of our story, inside of human history. I mean, as followers of Jesus, you know, our faith isn't rooted in abstract ideas or concepts, but in a real conviction that God has started something new and good and beautiful right here in the middle of our world through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this thing's still happening. It's still going on. And not only that, one day Jesus will return to finish what was started, to set things right. I mean, at the heart of this part of the creed is this conviction that history is headed somewhere and that somewhere is good. I know we've talked about this before, but I think it's worth bringing up again. You know, the earliest uh, root words for our English word, hope, The root word of that means curve or or bend. Hope at its core is a word about direction. It reminds me of what MLK said when he he said to us that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. He was saying that change takes time. 
but it does happen. And even in a way, it's sort of inevitable. And I know that can be really hard to hold on to, especially in times like these. You know, not given you know all the stuff in our own country, but then also on top of that, oh, the horror that's happened in you know Israel and Palestine. That's been so heavy on my heart. Not just the horror of what's happening there, but just the fact that it and it gets hijacked and by our partisan issues. It's just disgusting. All of it's disgusting. But I mean, it can be really hard to hold on to this belief, right? That that we're going somewhere, that we're headed somewhere. But in times like these, it's it's been helpful for me to sort of consider all the different contexts that this creed has been affirmed, you know, over the centuries. I mean, Christians have affirmed this creed under the rule of oppressive governments and in the midst of severe persecution. Christians have affirmed this creed in the midst of famine and war. I mean, two world wars to be exact. Think about all the things that humanity has endured and we're still here. In the midst of all that has gone on, I mean, for at least, at least the last 2,000 years, there's been a group of people who have had the audacity to affirm that the tomb's empty, that Jesus rose, that love and life triumph over fear and death. And I think at the heart of it, what it means to be people of the creed, it means to open our heart up to this conviction that history really is headed somewhere and that somewhere is good. This isn't an attempt to try and just be a little more optimistic, you know, or to be okay with how things are. No, there's still so much work to be done in regards to justice and equality and setting things right. There is so much work to be done. But I think what this conviction does is it opens us up to trusting that the work is accomplishing something, that it matters, that it's carrying all of this forward. I mean, it's like what the Apostle Paul says a bit later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, after talking about our future hope as Christians, he says, because of this, we know that we do not labor in vain. It's getting us somewhere. That's what it means to be people who affirm this part of the creed. And that's who I want us to be. So the challenge this week is, again, go back to what we did week one. And just fold the creed into your daily routine. Pray through it a couple times a day. And ask God to make this story your story the one that informs how you live and how you move and what your presence is in this world. That's the challenge for this week. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are somebody who doesn't just stand at a distance when it comes to what's happening here with us. But man, you are so involved. You are invested. You are a God who is engaged, most notably in the person of Jesus. That in Him and through Him, you started something good and true that is moving our history forward. And we want to be a part of that. So help us be people who go into the work with that sort of awareness, um, that inevitability, that, Lord, it is only a matter of time before every knee will bend, every, every knee will bow um, to who you are and what you're about. Help us be a part of that work day in and day out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, thanks for watching. We always appreciate when you click that share button and let your friends know about us. We'll be back at the River Center next week, Sunday morning, 10 a.m. See you there.